Well, good evening, everyone. It's okay to talk in church. We were just terrific in uh, knowing that we're back with a lot of you that we've known before. And I pray it will be a blessing to you. I also need to uh, speak to you in behalf of myself and my wife to thank you for your wonderful prayers. Um, many of you know it has been uh, two years of unbelievable things that have happened. Uh, the first thing that happened was I got the most serious case of malaria uh, in Africa where I was teaching, and I went into a coma. But uh, God was gracious unto me, I think. I'm not sure about this. Uh, I started thinking more about heaven and seeing my Lord, and then He heals you, and I have to come and talk to you. I mean, come on, think about it. It's a little bit rough. But um, we pulled out of that, and then uh, last October I went to uh, England for a conference, and it was there where the plague, the worst plague they've seen of E. coli, hit that nation. 22,000 men my age are already dead. All of the babies are dead that got hit with it. It then moved over to Germany. It is now in Yemen. They don't understand how that passes. Primarily, E. coli is a dangerous virus that is uh, hard to see. It is just like specks. And uh, it's in primarily lettuce and vegetables. Um, I've always enjoyed good salads, but I've learned a lot about them uh, this year. Anyway, I went into a coma again, this time for three weeks. And uh, when I came out of that coma, uh, I was singing the words of until then. Until then, my eyes will be hope, you know. And there was a guy harmonizing with me. Well, uh, because E. coli hits your whole body, you have no strength on anything. Uh, you can't move. You've got to have help. And uh, so they had to get a special guy because of my size that who could lift me and carry me around. As a big black guy that became such a blessing to me, he loved the Lord. And so he, when I'm coming out of the coma, he's harmonizing with me. <laughs> and we became such good friends. I treasure the moments that we've shared together. And uh, when you're totally helpless and you can't move, um, believe me, a friend like that is a jewel from the Lord. Well, I was three months in the hospital. 135,000 is my 20%. Hello? That was a health care statement. And it's going to get worse under Obama. Okay, anyway. <laughs> So I'm, I'm recovering from that as well. But I want to thank you for your prayers. Uh, I wish I had a better report for, for my, uh, my wife. Um, uh, she's still under chemotherapy. She's still the longest patient in America with the blood disease that she has. She has her blood removed every month, and they don't replace it. It used to come out in 30 minutes. Now it takes four and a half hours to get that blood out. It's like mud. It's very hard. And uh, so she's having a rough time. So I appreciate your prayers. They have said almost every year now, they tell us that Carol's not going to make it through the year. They just told us that again a month ago. 
And I said, if, if it means going home to be with the Lord, praise God. But I said, Doctor, um, you don't know a whole lot. You really don't. He's looking at me. What do you mean by that, sir? I said, I know you're well-trained, but we've been with you for 20 years, and you don't know anything. He looked at me and said, well, I, I, I try. <laughs> I said, well, it hasn't worked, whatever you've been doing. So we just been uh, talking to the Lord about it. You talk to the Lord? I said, yes, directly. Well, how do you know he hears you? Well, she's still alive, in spite of you. <laughs> and um, I told him my favorite story about cancer. I said my wife's mother had cancer all the way through her body, and they told her she wasn't going to live maybe six weeks, eight weeks. So every week my wife says, we got to go see mom. This could be it. She died 21 years later <laughs> of a heart attack, not even a cancer. I've had cancer too. I don't know what the issue is. It's like the C word puts the fear of God into our lives. Why don't we give it up, folks? You're going to die on time, every one of us here. Amen? Amen? Isn't that a thrilling thought for those of you who have cancer? You're going to die on time, and it may not be from the cancer. It may be from coming to hear wackos like me. I'm very disturbed about what's going on in the churches. Um, this is not a bragging point. Uh, it's a sorrowful point. Um, for 20 years now, I've been visiting churches every week. I haven't had a break yet this fall. started in August and I've been every single week. And... Uh, there is a deterioration going on among churches. They're trying anything and everything. And we've gotten away from what God says we ought to be doing. Uh, I wrote a book that you haven't probably seen yet called The Church of Jesus Christ. Everybody thinks it's a book about Mormons. No, it's not. It's a book about the real church. And uh, I've seen many people deeply affected by what they read in that book. I would recommend you get it and read it carefully. It's going to attack many of the views that you might have held about what the church is and what it should be doing. But anyway, uh, uh, several years ago, actually it was in 1974, I was at a major conference and speaking, and um, it was about prophecy in Israel, which is my favorite subject, and uh, I made a statement at that time that everybody jumped all over me about, but I said, I think the subject of Israel is going to become a dividing point in the Church of Jesus Christ. I think pastors are going to stop talking about it. I think they don't know what to say about it. And uh, you're going to see a revolution here. Well, little did I realize what was going to happen. 91%, according to a recent study done by the Barna organization, 91% of all of our churches, 375,000 churches, believe in what is called replacement theology, whether they even know the meaning of the term. What they believe is that God has canceled his everlasting covenant with Israel and replaced it with the church. Well, I don't happen to believe that. Uh, and I'm uh, 
Well, some of the favorite speakers that you listen to call me the most dangerous man in America. But I always write them a letter of thank you after that because it really increases the sales of our books every time they criticize me. But seriously, I'm not wearing my heart on this sleeve. I'm not here for my health. I'm here to tell you the truth about what God's Word has to say. Now, one of the areas of controversy that's become huge is God's plan for Israel in the book of Romans. When I went to graduate school years ago, back in the dark ages, um, the teacher I had, I could tell, was anti-Semitic. I knew he was. And uh, he didn't like me, and I didn't like him. And he always wished that I would go home early. Uh, I have a way of asking questions. You know, you don't learn anything if you don't ask anything. And uh, he taught Romans as though it was a Gentile book until chapter 9. And in chapter 9, he said, there's a parenthesis for three chapters that's trying to explain to us that Israel is no more. That's what he said. I raised my hand, which he tried to ignore. I finally got two up there waving. He finally said, what now? Very hostile to me. I said, sir, I respect your knowledge, your age, and all of it, but um, I'm sorry, I don't believe a thing that you've been teaching us in Romans. I think the entire book is a Jewish book, written by a Jewish man who was orthodox in every sense of the word, and I don't think you understand Jewish roots at all. I think you've been wrongly teaching these chapters. The whole book is Jewish. He said, what makes you think so? I said, thanks for asking. He really wasn't, but anyway. I said, I know it's a Jewish book. You see, Jewish people ask questions. And when they answer you, they ask another question. Are you understanding me? Like Romans 6, uh, shall we continue in sin that grace? Well, how can we that are... You feel like screaming. Will you give me the answer? Well, they are, but it's through questions. Uh, let me illustrate. <clears throat> Tonight, I asked several of you, <clears throat> just experimenting, but I asked you, hey, how are you? Do you know you all answered in a typical Gentile way? You said, fine. I mean, even if you have the flu, you're not going to get into it with me, okay? So I understand but when I ask my Jewish friends, how are you? They always say, why do you ask? <laughs> and I say, why? You think I have a problem in asking? No, I say I have a problem. Before you know it, we're arguing. We don't know how it happens. We grow up arguing. And there's somebody in this world we don't like. Gentiles. And of course, they dominate the world. I think God loves Chinese people better than anybody else because he made so many of them. Amen. <laughs> Jews are the fewest of all people. But you're either a Jew or you're a Gentile, one or the other. And what we have going on in the church of Jesus Christ is it's been turned upside down. So the Gentiles are now saying that we Jews need to be grafted in to the Gentile church. Well, my friends, that is a screwed up thing if I ever heard of it. It's terrible. And I think it's time we talk about it. Now, uh, you see the passage. I'm only going to deal with chapter 9, but I'm going to spend three sessions on chapter 11, and I'm going to talk to you about four arguments 
about God's plan for Israel. Take your Bible and turn to Romans 9. Romans 9. I hope you came to study God's Word. There are four basic arguments in the three chapters of chapter 9, 10, and 11. Chapter 10 talks about how the Gentiles are going to be received by the Lord. That's a part of His plan for Israel also. Now, uh, what are these four basic arguments? Um, you know, do you have a clicker or something, or you guys are just geniuses back there? Look at this. I only need to say the word, and bang, there it is. Here are the four basic arguments. One, genealogy. We're going to deal with that tonight. Or if you want to ask a question about it, who are the children of Israel? Seventh-day Adventists say it's us. Mormons say it's us. We're the children of Israel. Um, I, I don't know how Mormonism is going to affect the election. I don't know. You know, Mitt Romney's kind of hanging in there, and John Huntsman is also on there. and I, I really don't know. But I thought it was amusing when they were asked by a very astute journalist who said, do you guys really believe that the New Jerusalem is Salt Lake City? Well, yeah. him hauling around, not really answering it. And he said, well, I wondered, because I didn't think Burger King and McDonald's were in the New Jerusalem. Well, he didn't like his question. So then he asked him, he says, now I understand that you guys think you're the children of Israel. And I was amazed Mitt Romney definitely gave the standard replacement theology. Well, uh, I don't believe religion should be a part of this whole campaign. And, well, of course you don't, <laughs> because you may not get elected because of what you believe. Oh, it is a part of this campaign, whether we like it or not. They're trying to kill Herman Cain. I mean, it's been unbelievable. Boy, all that stuff has come out. That woman's done this before to other people. What's the matter with us? And poor Herman Cain doesn't know how to answer it, right? Because he's not really a politician. That's why I'm going to vote for him. But seriously, that dear guy is getting, I mean, attacked like you can't believe. And why? Well, he's also a Baptist-ordained minister. He also is a very good singer. be nice to have somebody in the White House who can sing hymns. Amen? Wow. But anyway... Um, Mitt Romney gave the answer of all answers. He said, well, if you know your theology, whether you're Mormon or who you are, you know that the church has replaced Israel in God's prophetic program. Really? You just lost my vote, Mitt. I'll never vote for you for what you say you believe now. Well, I don't think my vote makes that much difference. In California, you know, you can still write in the candidates for president. They know me very strong. They know me. Why? Because I write in Jesus Christ every, every election. Well, wouldn't he be the best one? So I just put his name in. President, Jesus Christ. Well, you know, they just offered me to be the major delegate of Southern California to the Republican National Convention. Can you imagine that? Have you ever gotten that? I, I couldn't believe they asked me. Maybe because I'm old and they don't think I'll make any trouble. They really don't know me. 
So uh, I turned it down. I want you to know, I turned it down. I said, I don't want to step down from preaching God's Word to go to a Republican convention that's in Tampa, Florida next summer. They said, you're kidding. This is a great honor. I said, well, it's much more important to teach the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. Amen? So what are the arguments against the view that the church has replaced Israel? God has four of them. One is genealogy we're going to deal with tonight. Who are the children of Israel? There's a big, hairy argument going on all over America. And if you don't have that in your church and you've got a pastor that believes the children of Israel mentioned 644 times in the Bible, are the children of Israel. Now, that's a profound answer. Amen? I've done a lot of study on the matter, and I'm telling you, the children of Israel are the children of Israel. Amen? I wonder if you really believe that. We'll find out soon. We also have the argument of grace. We'll get into it in chapter 11. Grace changes everything. Grace will never cast away his people. We'll find out about that. And then also tomorrow morning, I'm going to talk about the argument of grafting. You see, what the devil is doing is he's switching people's minds. Pastors who ought to know better, who ought to understand what God says, they're changing their mind. And they're thinking it's the Jews that get grafted in now. And that's why they think it's so hard for Jews to become believers in Yeshua. Here's another one. Well, all of those people over there in Israel are unbelievers. They have nothing to do with God's program. Really? Who told you that? How in the world could God pour out His Spirit and save a bunch of them at the end of the tribulation unless they were over there in unbelief? Duh! Are you with me? Hello? I love the way you're looking right now. You don't know what to do. Look, Dr. J. Vernon McGee was a dear friend of mine. He had his Orange County Bible study in my church for years. We had a lot of fun together. He's one of the funniest guys I've ever known in my life. One day I called him. I was all burdened about something. He listened to me for about 20 minutes. And I said, well, what do you think, Dr. McGee? He said, well, if I were you, I'd just flush it down the toilet and hung up. That was J. Vernon McGee. I miss him. We need those old warriors who had no fear whatsoever. They'd say what they believed God wanted them to say. However, there was one thing, and I, I still remember the day I confronted him, and I felt terrible. Here's the number one Bible teacher around the world. His broadcast is still number one. And uh, he's been dead for years. Uh, his telephone number of Through the Bible is 1-800-65-BIBLE. Our telephone number is 1-800-75-BIBLE. So people get a little mixed up. And we get calls often and say, I'd like to speak to Dr. McGee. So we say, well, who wouldn't? <laughs> By the way, if you get in touch with him, let us know. That's going to be a miraculous thing because he's been in heaven for 20 years. But anyway... I said to Dr. McGee one day, I said, I, I, I just have a problem with your teaching. He looked at me and said, what problem? I said, well, I heard your tape. You said that Israel was over there in unbelief, therefore they could not be a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. 
He said, well, that's true. I said, no, it isn't. Dr. McGee, I, I, I respect you. you you're, you're much more smart than what you sound like on the radio. And I know you got a THD from Dallas, so you're not a dummy. I said, I want to ask you a question. Why would God pour out His Spirit at the end of the tribulation upon Israel if they've already come to believe in the Lord? He thought a minute. Well, what are you trying to say? I said, I think you know what I'm trying to say. Israel has to go back in unbelief if God's going to work on them at the end of the tribulation to come to Him. I, I don't understand, McGee, your, your, your opinion. It's wrong. And I believe your ministry would be blessed a hundredfold more if you get straight down on this. <laughs> and I said, and I won't say any more, and I won't tell anybody publicly unless you die. <laughs> Which he did. But anyway, I want you to know I was there at the National Religious Broadcaster sitting at the table on the stage with Dr. McGee when I heard him publicly say that I've been wrong on the issue of Israel. He said, God's covenant is everlasting. He has never broken it. And Israel will go back there in unbelief. And God is going to pour out His Spirit one day on that nation and they're going to turn to the Lord. I just started crying. He was having an 80th birthday party, so to speak. And uh, he said, oh, I wish that I had understood this years ago. Well, let me tell you what happened. From age 80 to age 86, his last message was preached in my church. I'll never forget it. It was Psalm 2 in the Messianic Psalm. And... Uh, People were really scared when they saw him because the cancer had eaten away his body and he was just a little tiny thing. He was always a great big man. He'd always walk in the room, took it, took it over. But now he was just shriveled up. But God used him in that last message. From 80 years old to 86 when he died, through the Bible radio, spread over 10 times what they had ever known. And people ask the question, why is God blessing through the Bible radio? I believe because they would make the decision to honor Israel and to stand with Israel and to not back off and buy into the replacement theology stuff. That doesn't make it right just because McGee was blessed. But God said, I'll bless those who bless you and I'll curse him who curses you. We need to get straight. Not only grafting, but the final argument is my favorite passage in the Bible, the end of chapter 11, on glory. If you want to have a shouting glory time, don't miss Sunday morning. It's going to be a great time in the Lord. So, let's read Romans 9, 1 to 13, our first message, genealogy. It's an argument as to the God's plan for Israel. The question is, who are they? Chapter 9, verse 1, I say the truth in Christ. I'm reading, by the way, out of the old King James. I am an old person. I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were a curse from Messiah or Christ, 
for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Messiah came, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. Now watch this carefully. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed or the descendants. For this is the word of promise, at this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election or his choice might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Wow. I think we better pray. Let's pray. Father, we don't want to presume that we know something just because we knew it years ago. Teach us, Lord, to be open and sensitive to your Spirit as we study his word. Thank you for using the Apostle Paul in such a mighty way to clarify and teach us as the Holy Spirit directed him to say what God wanted to be said, totally reliable, authentic in every way, inspired, inerrant. Thank you for your word. Bless our time together, we pray. Pray for those that may not be sure of what they hear. I pray, God, that you'd give them patience and give them an understanding spirit and a heart to know your truth, for your truth will set us free. We thank you, Lord, in the blessed name of our Lord Yeshua, we pray. Amen. There are just two main paragraphs in these 13 verses. In the opening verses... Verses 1 to 5, the subject is the sorrow of Paul. I have, um, I have thought about this for years. Why is it that we don't see this kind of burden among average Christians? To see the Apostle Paul here is amazing. Not only will we look at his sorrow, but in the second paragraph beginning... Uh, with verse 6, we'll see the selection of the seed. Who is really the seed? 
So let's start by taking a look at the sorrow of Paul. The first thing I want you to notice in the opening three verses is he revealed his personal feelings here like no other way. Um, A few things I want you to notice. In verse 1, notice that his feelings are controlled by the truth. You know, sometimes we have feelings that are not controlled by the truth. Uh, It's just an emotional reaction that maybe we believe or don't believe or whatever. But Paul said, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. This is a strong position he's taking. It's not only controlled by the truth, but it's caused by the Holy Spirit. He says, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. He said something like that back in chapter 2 of Romans, verse 15. I need to talk to you just a moment about this. A lot of us are troubled trying to understand the word conscience. Where does it fit in? We know that 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says that we're composed of body, which we all notice, and we're composed also of soul, psyche, the science of psychology, study of the soul, uh, our volition, our, our will, our mind, our intelligence, uh, and our feelings. But we're also composed of spirit, which apparently is some sort of connection we make when we're born again with the Lord who loved us. So uh, I know that we're body, soul, and spirit, but I also know that the Apostle Paul, who told us that, spoke often of the word conscience. The Bible tells us in John 8, verse 9, that we are convicted by our conscience. Now, your conscience can be seared because of your own sin or rebellion or not wanting to deal with this. You suppress it, and before long, you're not convicted anymore. You're in a state of rebellion against God. Be careful about that. Uh, the conscience can be seared. That's in 1 Timothy 4.2. It can be defiled. 1 Corinthians 8.7 or Titus 1.15. It is called weak by Paul in 1 Corinthians 8.10 and 12. It's called evil in Hebrews 10 verse 22. Paul does speak of a good conscience in Hebrews 13.18. He desires us to live honestly And you must be controlled by a good conscience that he also calls, when he wrote to Timothy, a pure conscience. Uh, He told us we need to purge or cleanse our conscience on a regular basis. In Acts 23.1, the Apostle Paul said publicly, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now, to put that word in this opening, uh, I believe, illustrates the seriousness of what he's trying to say to all of us. There's a broken heart behind his teaching here. And unfortunately, the church has lost the sensitivity of a broken heart for the Jewish people. Look, I can tell you, um, it isn't easy to love us. You know, for years, I I didn't want people to know that my dad was Jewish because we never went to synagogue. He smoked big stogies and swore like a fiend. 
But the actual way he got saved was a Gentile couple who lived in our neighborhood invited him. He was a rough old oil man, I can tell you. But they invited him to hear a message about Israel. Israel was in his heart. Why? Because in World War I, he was in the military intelligence of Britain. You remember the Balfour Declaration? Lord Balfour was the one that pushed a Jewish homeland uh, for the Jewish people. And my dad never forgot it. So all those years went by, and now we're going to go hear a guy talk about Israel. But it was before 1948. So he went to hear this man preach. And that night, this old rough oil man, who couldn't say two words without swearing, knew it was the truth. And he gave his heart to Yeshua that night. He came home and he turned up our home upside down. It was unbelievable. I can still hear my mother yelling at him as he was taking beautiful paintings off the wall. She said, what are you doing? He said, I've already read in Deuteronomy. We're supposed to have the Word of God on our walls. She said, well, at least make it beautiful. Well, he did. He hired an Israeli architect, and we still have copies of them. We had them in every room of our house, in gold antique frames and old English on uh, parchment. We still, if you ever come to Hope for Today's office in Southern California, when you walk into the receptionist's office, you'll see one of these giant paintings. And the, the background scenes are all from the Holy Land. Anyway, our home got changed pretty quick. And uh, then in 1948, wow, I'll never forget that. May 14th, my dad says, I want you to sit in front of the radio and don't say anything. We were scared to death. Because that night, David Ben-Gurion announced to the entire world, the name of this land will be exactly what the prophet Ezekiel said it would be. Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. By the way, that's still the name, but notice you hardly ever read that in journalism. They'll say Israel, but they'll never say land of Israel, because that suggests that God gave them a land. Amen? Some of you look like you haven't got the slightest idea what I'm going to do. The third thing I would mention about the sorrow of Paul is that it was characterized by deep sorrow and grief, like over a loved one who died. Wow. It reminds me in Luke 19, when the Lord came into Jerusalem that Palm Sunday, we read that He wept over the city. Luke 19, 41. That's what we see going on in the Apostle Paul. He said, I have great heaviness. The Greek words used 16 times all the way through Paul's writings. A deep sorrow, like you just lost a loved one. A fourth thing I would mention is that this sorrow of Paul was centered in his desire for their salvation. Um, after studying this in some degree, 
I can't look at my Jewish friends and neighbors and only think of arguing with them and hope they come to our church and et cetera, et cetera. No. We have a lot of Jews in our family. And through marriage, Carol's Jewish. Um, my youngest son married a Polish Jew, and they're really tough. Amen? Any Polish Jews here willing to admit it now? But um, there was only one thing on his heart. And if I could communicate to you tonight what Paul said, I would do it in every way possible. Our sorrow is not just the passing tears of an Esau. Our sorrow is rooted in what we understand is God's plan for Israel. He calls them my people over and over again. He promises them that in the future, I'll be your God and you will be my people and you will not believe what I will do. God intends to bless his people. He's not done yet. And Paul, his whole sorrow was centered in his desire for their salvation. He said, my brethren, my kinsmen, according to flesh. Listen, Moshe, uh, excuse me, Moses had the same burden. In Exodus 32, 32, if it were possible, which it's not, God brought me out of your book, but don't do your people that you said you had a plan for. It was Moses, and now again an Orthodox Jew named Paul. He couldn't get it out of his heart. Well, that's one thing, but here's the second thing in verse 4 and 5. He realized the blessings upon Israel, therefore he couldn't run away from it. And I'm here to say to all of you, these verses may seem not significant. They may seem, oh yeah, I, I know about that. Do you really? What are the blessings of Israel from the Lord? So let's list them. Number one, they are God's people. What does he call them? Israelites. I just had a pastor tell me they're not Israelites. Are you kidding? Paul was praying for unbelieving Israel and said the blessing is that they are Israelites. Wow. God's purpose was to adopt them as his children. And says so in all of the minor prophets. God wasn't finished with them. And God knew about their disobedience and sin. And God judged them many, many times. But He never canceled His everlasting covenant. And by the way, that's the message we all need to understand as Gentiles. God's never going to throw me out. He didn't save me because I've been a good boy, because I haven't. No, no, no. He saved me by His grace. We need to understand something. We're all sinners. We deserve hell. It's a miracle that any of us will be in heaven. You say, you're talking about my wife. Well, she might be a serial killer for all you know. But the point is, we all are in desperate need of God's grace and mercy. If it weren't for that, we would never make it. Never. And God's presence, He said, they have the glory. We're talking about the Shekinah glory of God. Imagine a cloud that was so thick the priests couldn't even move when it came down over the tabernacle and later the temple. We call that the Shekinah glory of God. Wow. 
They had the promises also, which are the covenants. The promise to Abraham is phenomenal. A nation, a land, and a descendant who will bless the entire world of Gentiles also. And to Moses, a wonderful commandment, a covenant that has commandments in it. In fact, there are 613 of them. I know they're probably posted on your refrigerator. 613 commandments? You've got to be kidding. No, I'm not. Some of them are very easy to obey. Really, they are. God told you not to eat any bat. I have never wanted to eat bat. But you know, there are some good things like shrimp, crab, lobster. Those are on God's hit list. And pig, pork. You know why Jews eat a little bacon on the side? They want to be like you. And if you ask them, if you push them on it, how come you're eating this bacon? They'll say, well, you must be a Gentile. We Jews cook the sin out of it. (laughs) Most of you are really thankful you're not under law, but under grace. Amen? Amen. To David, what a covenant that was. There's going to be someone from your direct line that's going to sit on the throne forever. And it's my covenant. You've sinned greatly. But nevertheless, for all that, I will never lie to you, David. My covenant stands forever, and I will never compromise. Boy, what a, what a Lord we have. And God's principles in the, in the law, the giving of the law, that belongs to them. God's place. We're talking here of the service of God. Uh, the Greek noun here, latreia, uh, the verb is latruo. It, it deals with priests who are serving the Lord. And we know in the New Testament we are called priests. We are to serve the Lord with all of our hearts. But the original service of God was done by the Jews. Uh, God's prophecies, which are called the promises here. Uh, that word is used 53 times in the New Testament alone. God has made promises to these people that He did not make to Gentiles. By the way, thank the Lord, some of it does apply to Gentiles. But God has made promises to Israel that if He doesn't fulfill, then He's not God and He's a liar. I'm not going to go that far, are you? We're not going to accuse God of lying. Read Hebrews six thirteen to 20 again. The promises of God are sure and steadfast and like an anchor of the soul. How about God's patriarchs? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, the Muslims are trying to get everybody that comes to Israel to understand that all the promises belong to them, to Islam. That it wasn't Isaac that they took up to Mount Moriah. It was Ishmael. Uh, They have taken over all of Jordan and gotten rid of the Christian tour agencies. And what they say now is so stupid, I can't believe it. We were at the Arnon River, and the Islamic guide said, this is where Jacob beat the tar out of that angel. What? I took him aside privately, not wanting to embarrass him. I said, hey, Jacob didn't win that fight. He limped the rest of his life. God touched the sinew of the thigh, the strongest point of a man's body. And he learned a lesson. You better stop fighting God. God changed his name to Israel. We're not sure what it means. 
Isra may be connected with the word to wrestle. And that fits the story in Genesis 32. But look what else they got. Number nine, they got the person of the Messiah himself. And there are three important things right there in that verse. Sometimes people say to me, my Jewish friends do, the Messiah is never called God. Sure he is. He's called God in the Jewish Bible. He's called God in the New Testament. And here's one of the passages that calls him God. It calls him God blessed forever. By the way, feel free to say amen. Because I read in the Bible that God can zap us for our silence. That's kind of dangerous, isn't it? Don't you think you said amen if it's something good about God? Amen? amen. Jesus is God blessed forever. Amen. There you go. You're getting saved. Praise the Lord. God's person, Messiah, three things. Here they are. One, incarnation. He said, as concerning the flesh, Messiah came. Did you know that statement in Greek assumes that he existed before he came? Wow. You see, he's the eternal son of God. And contrary to a popular teaching on the radio today, he didn't become the son of God when he came into this world. Anymore... I spoke to a large Catholic audience of over a thousand Catholics in Toronto, Canada, who had been listening to my program and invited me to come. The priest was rather upset. He says, you're taking people away from my church. No, I'm not. I'm just preaching the truth. You know, we stood in front of a thousand people and argued all night. The only thing I regret is we didn't tape it. It would have been great. I would circulate it everywhere. The Catholics were absolutely stunned by this very academic priest. Why? He said, Mary was the mother of God. I said, that's impossible. He said, well, no, it's not, because Mary's chromosomes uh, is what went into Jesus to brought him into the world. I said, no, that's not correct. He said, why? I said, because if you have only female, 23 chromosomes, the result is always female. And uh, I suppose you have read the Bible enough to know that he's the son, not the daughter of God. Well, you're trying to say that Joseph's sperm was in there and we know that he didn't know her until after the birth. I said, I didn't say anything of the kind. I said, why don't you tell the people your view? And he was surprised that I asked him that. So here's what he said. We still think about this a lot. He said... God fertilized the egg of Mary. And I said to the entire audience, you people believe that? And they all said, yes. I said, well, you're believing a lie. That's impossible. No, he didn't fertilize the egg of Mary. The Bible says he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that his body was in existence before he was born as a baby. That God supernaturally placed him into the womb of a Jewish woman to fulfill Psalm 132, verse 11, and also that there weren't any sperm chromosomes from any man, and there weren't any female chromosomes either. So Mary is not the mother of God. And then he got mad. He was yelling now. And he said, that's impossible. I said, why? Well, uh, 
It just is. I said, that's not enough, sir. You have been deceiving all of these people who go to your church. I said, it's your problem for inviting me to come. You never should have invited me. That's why you're having trouble right now. Because somebody's confronting you with the truth. No, we don't believe in fertilization. We believe in incarnation. God became flesh. The Greek word genomai assumes a change of condition. He was in existence before it happened. Concerning the flesh, Messiah, who was already in existence, came through that avenue. Secondly, his very influence. It says in that verse that he is over all. Do you believe that? So don't criticize me for writing in his candidacy to the California voting ballot. He is over all. I want a man who's over all. By the way, the Bible also says he's greater than all. This is my Lord. And his true identity, the last phrase, verse 5, God blessed forever. And even Paul can't hold back. Amen. First John 5.20 says, This is the true God and eternal life. In many debates of the past, I've been told, Oh, no, no, the word this, the pronoun, refers to eternal life. No, it doesn't. Well, how do you know that? Because a pronoun in Greek must agree in gender and number with what it modifies. Well, it modifies eternal life. No, it doesn't. The pronoun is masculine. Eternal life is a feminine noun. Then what does it modify? Always the closest antecedent. The word right in front of the word this in 1 John 5.20 is Christ. This one is the true God. Amen? Amen. May we never forget what we've just heard. Now that brings us to probably one of the more controversial paragraphs found in the New Testament called the selection of the seed. And that argument of genealogy is still fundamental to our understanding about where do we fit in? God's plan for Israel and how does it include us and what's going on here? One lady just uh, called me on the phone and uh, Everybody else was already on the phone, so I picked up the phone, and she said, Okay, I want the truth. Are we Jews or Gentiles? I said, Well, I don't know. I don't know you. Well, I'm not Jew. I'll tell you that. I said, Well, then you're a Gentile. And she said, Well, am I in or out? I said, Well, that depends on whether you believe in a Jew. She said, is there anyone else there I could talk to? (laughs) Let's take a look at the selection of the seed. Chapter 9, verse 6. Not as though the word of God had taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Neither because they're the seed of Abraham are they all children. In terms of the promise, that's so. Ishmael was blessed of God the father of all Arabs. But in fact, that's not the Messianic line. It came through Isaac. 
not Ishmael. They that are the children of the flesh, why they're called that in the Bible. Hagar's child. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. And now he brings up an interesting problem. So I'm going to show you this in terms of a a lawyer dealing with it in court in terms of a case. Okay? So let's take a look at the first case. It's Isaac and Ishmael in verses 6 to 9. Now, what do we learn here? Number one, we learn that the plan of God does not include all people. There are churches teaching that false doctrine today by the scores. The pastor of the largest church, I never know whether the one in Southern California is largest or he's the largest in Houston, Brother Osteen. But since he hasn't ever been to Bible school and confessed the same on Larry King Live before Larry went off the air, I'm going to take him at his word. He said, the plan of God includes all people of the world. Because Larry asked him, would Muslims also be in heaven? And he said, the plan of God includes all people of the world. No, it doesn't. Not unless they believe in a Jewish Messiah. Now, I said that in a big convention, and a speaker got up and contradicted it. He said, David, I know you have a lot of strange views, but he said, um, what you just taught uh, is not true. God loves the whole world. I said, that is true. John 3.16, 1 John 4, 9 and 10, that is true. And that includes everything. No, that's not true. God loves unbelief. No, he doesn't. He calls them wicked and that he hates them. He turned to me, are you going to tell all these people that God hates some people? I said, well, it's not a guess. It's several times in the Bible. God hates all the workers of iniquity. Oh, did you think you were in the in-group just because you're a person? No. Uh-uh. Not at all. There's something you must do in order to be sure of eternal life and forgiveness. You're going to have to turn to the one who died for you and rose again. He's your only hope. There is no other way. There is no other option. Stop believing what the world's saying. This is big on the college campuses right now. And uh, if they were sitting here which I had last week in Chico State, they would yell at you. Why? Because America in its churchianity has made toleration its theology. You have to tolerate anything and everything. If you ever speak against anybody for any reason, you are mean-spirited, you are a person who hates, and we need to deal with you and put you in prison. If you don't believe this, then you haven't been on a secular college campus in a while. In the classroom, they, in fact, believe that anyone who says that anybody, for whatever reason, is outside of God's plan, is telling a lie. 
They were yelling at me. It's all right, I'm used to it. And uh, so I let them finish, and they finally ran down from all their yelling and arguing. And I said, here's the deal. It isn't me that your battle is with. Your battle is with the God of the Bible. So I'd like to read to you some verses in the Bible, and then you'll realize that you're arguing against the very one that will send you to hell. You know, instead of wanting to attack and argue, they were like shocked. You see, it comes down to, is there a heaven? Everybody's going to heaven, one guy said. No, that's not true either. In fact, the Bible says the majority of people are going to hell. Only few are going through the straight and narrow gate to heaven. Now, I don't know what you think about all this, but my statement to all of you is we better wake up and wake up fast. We have a whole generation of young people, bright, talented, etc., who are being smothered by this philosophy in our schools and universities. Everybody's going to heaven. Why, well, even the guys that don't believe in God say it. Because they don't believe the Bible is the Word of God, they're never going to come to the truth. The Bible says that's also true. Wow. The plan of God does not include all. Verse 6 and 7 says, They are not all Israel which are of Israel. Now, for some reason, um, yours truly is being invited to a lot of Jewish synagogues. And I don't mean Messianic ones. I mean the regular type. And I get invited all the time. And I enjoy it. I enjoy the uh, hostility. I know that sounds odd. But it's their fault for asking me to come. And uh, I've spoken to the largest Jewish synagogue in the world. There were over 12,000 there that morning. After we finished teaching, uh, he opened it up for questions. I promised him that I would not bring up Yeshua unless they asked me. The first guy that raised his hand said, Do you believe Yeshua is the Mashiach? I turned to the head rabbi. I said, it's your call. He said, go ahead, because we had made that deal. So that's when things really got hot. But I loved every minute of it. I said, well, let's just uh, look at this from a Jewish point of view. They said, what do you mean a Jewish point of view? I said, well, we wouldn't want to believe in anybody being the Messiah that we couldn't prove fulfills all the prophecies. I said, you know the Christians, what they argue? They argued that there's 300 prophecies about the coming of Christ, and you guys all know that's wrong. Now they're really stunned. I said, because your rabbis, all of them, say there's 554 prophecies about the Messiah. I think your guys are right. And they went, all right, all right. And I said, so let's just read a few of them that they say, without question, refers to the Messiah. And after doing that for about 20 minutes, there was no more questions. And the head rabbi, whose name is Feinstein, by the way, I asked him if he had a relative in the Senate. But anyway, 
He got mad at me for that. He doesn't like her. But anyway, he got up and he said, Folks, here's the problem. What he has just done has shown us how wrong we are. He said, I don't believe Yeshua is the Messiah, but I'm saying we should be studying our Bibles to find out who the Messiah really is. I said, oh, that'd be wonderful. Why don't you guys do it? Hey, why don't you preach on it for a few weeks? You know, he says, well, I'll think about that, <laughs> you know. But anyway, the case of Isaac and Ishmael is clear. Now, two things about that. One, God's Word has not failed. What does it say? Not as though the Word of God had taken none effect. The argument of Romans 9, 4 and 5 in God's choice of Israel, that's all based on Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 9. Read it for yourself. God chose Israel above all nations of the world. He has a plan for them. And, uh, and uh, not only has God's Word not failed, but God's will was clearly revealed. Look what it says. In Isaac, says the Bible, shall thy seed be called. You will find that statement throughout the Old Testament, but also in the book of Hebrews. In Isaac, the seed is called. Now you say, well, that just means his children, Jacob and Esau. No, it doesn't. Why? Esau's not included. Remember the first premise? The plan of God does not include all. So it's the promise of God that made this all clear. Look at verse 8 and 9 again. He's quoting this. And what we would learn is first, that physical connection is not enough. Well, we're Jewish, you know. My youngest son's wife, who's a Polish Jew, uh, her mother, bless her heart, knows nothing about the Bible. She's a Polish Jew. We're taking her with us to celebrate Thanksgiving this next week. I can hardly wait. <laughs> but she doesn't know anything. But she was stunned when I told her. Well, just because you have a father's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob does not mean that you are a child of the promise. What? Well, we've always believed that. Well, you may have always believed that, but it's not true. The children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. The Bible makes that very clear. Physical connection is not enough. But number two, spiritual commitment is absolutely necessary. It says the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Now, that's Isaac and Ishmael. We're not done yet. Here's the tough one. Jacob and Esau. Verses 10 to 13. And with this, we'll wrap up tonight's message. Look at the way Paul says it. And not only this, but... The cause behind this, folks, is the purpose of God, according to verse 10 and 11. It's a purpose of God. Now... You might get confused here. I'm going to try to break it down, be as simple as I can. I believe in putting the cookies in the bottom shelf so all of us kids can get them. Amen? So what do we learn about God causing this situation? 
It's his purpose. What do we learn? Number one, we learn the point at which the decision was made, they were not yet born. Did you hear that? You see, the church today has forgotten the teaching that's in Romans 9 about the selection of the true seed that God is going to save. No, friends, everybody's not in this. According to this, we are chosen before we come into existence. If you want to see something that just rips college students apart, that teaching does. And I said, don't argue with me. you got to argue with the Bible. That's what it says. Romans 9. It's very clear. Hmm. For the children, verse 11, being not yet born. Why, Ephesians 1.4 says we're chosen before the foundation of the world. I said that recently in a church, and a guy came up and said, are you a Calvinist? I said, no. Are you an Arminian? No. Then what are you? Uh, I believe the Bible is the Word of God. I'm going to stick with the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. Well, what do you think about Calvinism? I think John Calvin was a mean-spirited person. I think he did a lot to harm the children of God. And, uh, but he was a good teacher on some issues. Well, what about Arminius? Well, he was a Reformed pastor to start with, but he saw the meanness of John Calvin. So they argued about it. Now we have Tulip. How many of you know what Tulip is? Oh, good, all five of you. <laughs> tulip, T, total depravity. Do you believe we're born in sin? I had a young couple that wanted to prove me wrong. They invited Carol and I over for dinner. They had a little baby. They had it in a high chair. And they had been programming that, children, that child to say yes. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so we're at the table. And uh, I turned to the child in the high chair. It was sitting right on my left. Carol was on my right. And I said to the little kid, You want some more potatoes? He said, No! And his father, who thought he had achieved a great theological miracle, uh, was totally devastated. Well, I guess they are kind of depraved, aren't they? Yeah, they are. I spoke to the Orange County Psychiatrists and Psychology Association. 126 psychologists, one Christian, the one on the board who invited me to come. Big mistake. In the back room, uh, the, the last row of the meeting, was a lady who had both psychiatric and psychology degrees, and she had a little baby in her arms. And she got very irritated at my teaching. So she stood up and she held the baby up and said, Do you mean to tell me that this little precious baby is a sinner? I said, Absolutely. Oh, that is disgusting, she said. I said, well, let me ask you. When it came out of your womb, did it come in laughing or crying? <laughs> well, crying. Well, you see, it knew something was wrong, even if you don't. <laughs> she said, that's stupid. I said, well, let me ask you. Does that child ever say no? It's almost two years old now. 
Well, of course. It says no to you? Why, you are the mother with all these degrees. Why would that child say no to you? That's just what children are. And one of the guys in the front who was on the board, he turned back to her and says, Mary Louise, just sit down. You've already lost the argument. (laughs) Tulip, total depravity. You, unconditional election. Uh Uh-oh. Was there anything in the boys that caused them to get saved? No. It says, verse 11, The children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil. So the point at which the decision was made was before they were born. And the presence of good or evil in their life was not a factor. It did not influence God's choice whatsoever. They haven't done any good or evil. Wow. That the purpose of God, according to election, that means choice, might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. You see, also the performance of good deeds was not a factor either. It was not of works. Oh, they must be, they must be real Christians. I've seen that they, they're such a wonderful couple. No. Even though you do good things, that's no guarantee that you've ever been born again. None. Well, what's going to fulfill the promise of God? thought you would ask. And it's the call of God, according to this. The call of God is what fulfilled the promise of God. It says, no, it's of him that calleth. You see, the choice was God's alone. For years, in the quietness of my own studies before God, I've asked that question. Lord, why me? Why not somebody else? I don't know. I'm thankful. But there's nothing in my life that would make God cause me, call me, to be His child. It was not based on anything in my life. This can shake a person up. There are a lot of church members that need to wake up. Who's really born again and who isn't? Well, God's going to make the decision. That's what it says. And the choice was God's alone. First, His decision was not what was expected. Why? Because He said, contrary to Jewish teaching, the elder shall serve the younger. Well, folks, let me give you two classics that Paul did. The case of Judah and the case of David. Judah was not the oldest son of Leah, the wife of of, uh, Jacob. In fact, he was the fourth son. Reuben was the oldest. In the case of David, he wasn't the oldest son of Jesse. He was number eight down the line. You see, the deeds of these two sons, Jacob and Esau, does reveal God's choice. He said, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated. And this was said after they were born, lived, and died. It said in Malachi 1, 2-5. It said in Obadiah 1, 3, and 4. It's God's message to us. Jacob I loved. 
You know, I, I've heard over and over again through the years that people don't like Jacob very much. He's a supplanter, manipulator, etc. Why is it that God loves him then? There's something wrong with our teaching. God never condemns Jacob for anything. Why are we doing it? Because we've been teaching wrong. Jacob represented the proverbial Jew to us. The Protocols of Mount Zion argued that. The worst, blasphemous piece of literature ever against the Jewish people. The best-selling book, by the way, in the Middle East. I want to put it to you in a simple way and close. Dr. Griffith Thomas has a lot of commentaries. He died many years ago. But he taught on a graduate school level, pastors. One of his students said to him one day after hearing his lecture on Romans 9, he said, Sir, I'm having trouble understanding why God hates Esau. And Dr. Thomas replied to him, Well, that's interesting, son. I'm having trouble understanding why God loved Jacob. The class was over. Look, I would be absolutely stupid to suggest to you that somehow I know why God chose us. <laughs> All I know is that He wanted to be glorified no matter what happens. He wanted people to know who He is, not who you are. And we see the exact opposite in our churches. Pastors can get enamored with how many people are there. I've tried to ask the Lord to give me a heart for anybody, no matter how few they are. It was not easy, people telling you all these things. When we were running 12,000 people, everybody thought, Wow, this is fantastic. you got a great pastor. I knew that was not the truth. So the only one who can deal with it is me. So I did a lot of weird things, I know. One lady wrote to the elders of our church and said, The pastor, I've been here four years, and the pastor has never visited me in my home. So the elders gave it to me and said, You better deal with this. So I got up the next Sunday and I said, We have some people that uh, are a little upset that I've never visited you in uh, your home. So I've worked out a little chart here. And uh, if I give you an hour... And I do this every day for five days a week. I'll be able to see you all in 14 years. And then we'll have to start all over again. Well, obviously, it isn't going to happen. You know, there comes a day when you know you're not a pastor, maybe a rancher, but not a pastor. How many people are going to pastor handle? Looks like in the Bible, 100 is all we can handle. So if you got 200, you better get another pastor. I like the way you're looking at me. This is going to cost us this talk. <laughs> now relax. The thing we need to be careful on is assuming that we are in the in-group because we've done a few things the church said we should do guy with his Ph.D. in 
Biology and Geology from the University of California, Irvine, has been coming to hear me in our midweek Bible study. And he came up and he said, I don't know why I keep coming. I don't agree with most of what you say. I said, well, I'm sorry that that's true. And he said, uh, I'm very disturbed that you think it's all up to God. I said, well, who do you think it's up to? You know, that's like asking me about the weather. CNN calls me and says, who do you think caused these disasters? I said, well, I think God did. Who do you think? The weatherman? (laughs) You know, what's wrong with us? I don't know if you understand this or not, that God is in charge. Totally. And His plan of salvation centers in the people of Israel. And if you don't get it, you really missed it. I said one Sunday morning, if you don't believe in the Jewish Messiah, you can't go to heaven. Oh, did people get mad. Had people coming up afterwards, what nonsense is that? All you have to do is believe in Jesus. I said, well, that's pretty dumb. They said, why? Because there are thousands of guys down in Mexico named Jesus, and they can't save you. What's the matter with people? John wrote in John 20, and verse 30 and 31, that many other signs he did, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you may believe that Yeshua is Hamashiach, that he is the Messiah, and in believing that, you will have life through his name. Case closed. You have to believe in the Messiah of Israel in order to go to heaven and know that your sins are forgiven. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you know what we need before we even ask you. And I thank you for this time we've been able to spend this evening looking at a very important passage about who is really in the in-group and who isn't. And Lord, I know this world of ours with this secular humanism dominating the culture, they don't want to hear that God's done all the choosing even before they're born. And that doesn't eliminate the need of our choosing to believe in Him. Lord, I just pray that as we continue our study tomorrow and get into very serious issues about Your plan for Israel and the world, help us, Lord, to understand the truth in Your Word even if it conflicts with our previously held opinions. Help us, Lord. With your heads bowed and eyes closed as we conclude our meeting, please don't look around. Maintain privacy for everybody. If you know that some things are not right, you're not sure if you've ever really been born again. Maybe you've been a church member for a long time. But this is a moment that you can grasp and use. And there will be no formal public declaration of you or your name or anything else. This is an opportunity where you're sitting to call upon God to cry out to Him. Right where you are, though no one on either side of you knows what you're doing, you do and God does. 
If you know there are things that are not right that you need to get straightened out, just lift your hand up to him right now and say, God, please help me. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Yes, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yes. In the back. Yes, sir. God bless you. It's a simple thing. It's between you and the Lord. Yes, sir, on the aisle. God bless you. Right where you are. God, please help me. I need to settle this in my life. Father, I thank you for these people. You see their hearts as well as their hands. And I pray, Lord, this weekend might bring them joy, conviction, confidence, assurance of their relationship with you. Thank you for your love and your forgiveness. In the blessed name of our Messiah, our Lord Yeshua, we pray. Amen.